Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hi, friends. Welcome back. Welcome, welcome. It's, I mean, we're beaten down. I, I, it's like the end of this school year has been nuts. I mean, we always <laughs> say that, but like, I don't know why this like spring, just since spring break has just been going, going, going. And it's weird because like, we already passed our, like, if we're thinking about our two years of limitations two years ago, right? we were right. already in, like, it's not like, oh, we're like hitting this like edge where we have to file things mm-hmm. because that's limitations because of COVID. Like, no, we already passed that. It, this is just like something new. I don't know. Yeah, we've talked about how we had hoped the educational system would have a sort of reset, but we are just finding that people are just hitting back even harder with trying to go back to the way things were. And it really wasn't that great before either. So why are we trying to go back to it? And I think, you know, the more that we try to label and we just love to label things and really like everybody learns so differently. I don't understand how some people just don't understand that. I don't know. I think it's easier sometimes to your head in the sand. I suppose. Yeah. It's scary to try new things, but well, and it's also hard because like I can, you know, it's hard as a parent or as an educator when you are trying to push back and you hit a wall And there's so many other factors that are getting in your way. It's like, well, if I can't even get to where I'm going, then why would I try? Like I've tried and it doesn't work. Um, But that mentality is, well, I'm going to keep doing it the same way. It's not going to work. So yeah, I'm going to stop. But it's like, well, maybe go over the wall instead of trying to dig under it. Try a different perspective. Try a different way. And I know that it's easier to say that, to, to do that. But we are in this time where we've realized that for anything, we talk about our rights, we talk about mm-hmm. our kids' rights, mm-hmm. about our safety. If we don't do something big, if we don't actually try, like nothing's going to happen and things are just going to go even more down the toilet. Like it is something where we kind of have to stand up and try something new. Yeah. And I, you know, part of the reason we had the podcast is to start different conversations. And I know about a month ago, we had AJ Crabill, you know, come on and talk about the mission and real purpose of a school board and, and how you as a parent can kind of get involved. And, you know, that might be the fresh perspective. And today, we're also going to have another fresh perspective. I think what's important with today's guest is that label that we put on, especially with our neurodivergent children, right? And seeing them as different and they're not, you know, fitting in. And so, you know, we either try to make this square peg going around hole, or we just kind of isolate them, right? Um, into different settings that may not necessarily be appropriate. So Ms. Bliss, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. I want to throw it to you to kind of introduce yourself and give a bit of a background. 
Sure. Thank you for having me. So I'm a genetics expert and a sociologist. I'm also an author of three books loosely around genetics and different aspects of our minds and our bodies. And my latest book is, of course, on intelligence and kind of looking at new ways of thinking of it and assessing it and looking at our kids differently, especially our kids who are neurodivergent and who have special needs and have disabilities. So I'm also a mom of three Mm -hmm. little kids. I just Mm -hmm. want to put that out there. I have two six-year-olds and a four-year-old. And I was formerly a teacher. So I did an AmeriCorps teaching program in Oakland, in the Oakland Unified School District. And I also taught as a long-term substitute when I was getting through graduate school in San Francisco and in this SF Unified School District. And so in that long-term subbing, I would basically go into a classroom for six months or more. And so I would, you know, replace the teacher essentially for a good chunk of the school year. And my last um, job was at a, in a special needs class. And so it was, you know, kind of the other model, not the mainstreaming model, but there Mm -hmm. were many classrooms that I did teach that, you know, had kids being mainstreamed, you know, but yeah, I just learned a lot about that. And that experience really shaped my interest in redefining what we think intelligence means and being smart means and to do so more inclusively. Oh my gosh. And especially having the now as a doctorate, having a doctorate with the science and technology, right? The sociologists also had, I think all these hats inform you particularly, right? And then, you know, informs what it is that you're researching. And I feel like sometimes I was just telling this to a client who has like 10 doctors, you know, this doctor is just looking at this, this doctor is just looking at this. And and sometimes you need like a case carrier, right? To kind Mm -hmm. of look at everything. And that's what I feel like you are able to do, especially with your background. Can you talk a little bit about the components that you see, like, I guess your definition of neurodivergent, right? We've used that term a lot, but it would be nice to kind of hear from your perspective, what that looks like or a loose definition. Yeah. So instead of exactly giving you a definition, I think Mm -hmm. what I want to do is talk about how we are all on various spectrums of knowledge, of, you know, development, of, Mm -hmm. you know, being Mm -hmm. strong at certain things and Mm -hmm. working towards goals in other things. And, you know, so, you know, a lot of times I think that we draw these bright lines you know, and we say like, okay, this, these people are neurotypical and these people are neurodivergent. And Mm -hmm. that's just not true. You know, we are, there are so many spectrums of, of all different kinds of behavior and of different kinds of, you know, um, mental processes. And, you know, again, like even saying strengths and weaknesses makes me really uncomfortable because Mm. it's, it's like, there's that puts a value on one side of the line, you know, and, or on one end of the spectrum, even if you accept what I'm saying, you know? So it's like, I don't, I, I think that we need to get away from that kind of binary way of seeing people that dichotomizing and then also of treating our students like, okay, here are the neurodivergent ones. And so they are kind of like, you know, that equals a problem to Mm -hmm. be fixed, you know, or, um, 
Mm -hmm. person to be like, you know, we got to place them. Where do we place them? It's like some kind of issue. Right. And then the other students on the neurotypical side get, you know, the system basically just propels them forward and talk, calls them successful and calls them intelligent. And so, you know, I think that this is part of my whole interest in thinking of intelligence differently is thinking, okay, all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we appear to be or what, how, you know, well-spoken we are or how much we can integrate in a social situation in a so-called normal way. Mm -hmm. All of us are on this journey of learning and Mm -hmm. that's an individual experience and we are individuals. And if we can just treat each student and each child, like the individual that they are Mm -hmm. and value them as an individual, then we would do better at, you know, having people reach the goals that they want to reach. And we will, we will actually do better at not just standardizing their education and then therefore, you know, sticking half of the people into a classroom mm-hmm. you know, far away from the other half and, you know, and then dispossessing them of a great education and opportunity, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember having this conversation with one of my clients whose child is on the spectrum, autism spectrum, and Mm -hmm. we were talking about how the schools tend to be so focused on disrupting these typical autistic behaviors as if they were just inherently bad, like not making eye contact as being like, that is, is something that we've as a society decided that if you don't make eye contact, that's a bad thing. And so therefore we have to eradicate it. And it's like, no, why are we looking at it from that perspective? It's the glass half empty perspective. It's the um, looking at it from the lens of, yeah, we need to fix it or we need to cure these disabilities or just that a disability is a bad thing. And that is such a perspective shift that like, I think people are starting to talk about more, but we still have a long way to go. Definitely. We are still treating children in this day and age, you know, in 2023, we're still treating children like they are a product, like they are, you know, an extension of how good we are. Right. And so they need to be successful in this very mainstream way. And so, you know, if they don't meet these milestones or do things the way that people have defined as successful, that they're failures, that they're not intelligent, that they don't deserve to be, you know, to go to college, they don't deserve to go forward with their education. And we take away all of those opportunities from them. And then we point to them and say like, oh, well, you just weren't normal enough. You know, you weren't, you didn't try enough or when really it's the sociologist in me wants to say it's our systems that are failing our kids. The systems shouldn't be set up to just churn out a certain type of person, right? The system should be able to accommodate the individuality of each of us and and say, there is a value in, in every single child here. There's a value in every single one. Every person's perspective is valuable. I, one of the things I was thinking about is that for children who have learning disabilities or any kind of, um, you know, present as neurodivergent in any kind of way to the, in the system's eyes, you have like an individualized education plan, right? Mm -hmm. But we have that also in, I'm a professor as well. And, you know, so we have that in 
for graduate students. And it's like when you get to the other end of the long career of education, you have an individualized plan because you recognize that each person is super valuable and whatever they want to do, we are going to help them do that. We're not here to tell them you should be this, you should think this, you should write books about this, or you should research this. No, we tell them, okay, how can we help you? Let's figure that out. What if every student had an IEP? What if every student was treated like an Mm -hmm. individual with like, Mm -hmm. you know, and and valued as that individual for what they're interested in and not just like, oh, let me just shove some information into you and tell you that that is fact and tell you that that is the be all end all of knowledge and then call you either successful or a failure, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I want to hit on a couple of things because we've had this conversation as well Is the system, right? The system is broken, right? And if there was to be a reset, it is exactly what you are saying. Everybody is able to learn in a certain way. And the information that we've had from the 70s, right, that I had just I had read about where, you know, we're trying to teach first graders how to read. And it seems like over the decades, they try to push that earlier and earlier and earlier. And it's like, if your three-year-old isn't reading, you're not doing a good job of being a parent, right? And yeah. like this, this, this long study, I'll, I'll try to get the information to try to put in the show notes. Um had recently said like, there is no advantage to like, keep pushing it, right? Like, yeah. like the kids in the seventies that were in the first grade are, were no smarter long-term over 30 years than the kiddos that, you know, we're trying to force to read way too early. And, you know, something else that you had pointed out is exactly that, like, any child can almost fit into a special population, right? You know, they're without a home, they're living in a shelter, that's special population, a a child with special needs, a child that comes from the foster care that's in the juvenile delinquent, like, there's so much crossover, but everybody is just saying, we've been doing this reading, writing and arithmetic for so long, like, this is just how we have to do it. And it just it does not fit. <laughs> it's just really forcing that square peg into that round hole. Yeah. It, it, well, it's, it's interesting bad. because we're starting to have this conversation about academics and standardized testing in general, right? Like colleges mm-hmm. are, you know, waiving SAT requirements or as being the sole factor and GPA even. Like we're starting to give this trend in, in upper education about you know, more than just these numbers. Yet when we talk about elementary education, special education, we're still talking about academics being the sole factor and whether or not a child should be in general education or a child should be removed from general education Mm -hmm. if they're not up Mm -hmm. to par on academics. And it's Mm -hmm. like, if we're saying that up here in college and real life that we recognize that these numbers on scores, on standardized tests are no longer something that should be the sole factor. Why are we still doing it for younger kids who have yet to develop their abilities and their learning potential? Yeah. And we've been seeing the Scandinavian way working Mm. so well Mm. for so many years and just like seeing this example of places where that kind of reading, writing, arithmetic, all of that doesn't start until a kid is seven or eight years old. And the social, emotional and play-based learning is the focus of the education all the way up until then, you know, and, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then we see like these 
off the charts literacy rates, off the charts happiness rates in terms of like subjective well-being reports and things like that, you know? And so it's just like, it's kind of crazy that we keep on doing it. And my kids, they entered kindergarten this year and they, two of them did, and they like their teacher was like, oh yeah, we're working on all of this reading, writing and arithmetic kind of stuff because she said something like kindergarten, you know, it's the new second grade or something oh, like no. that, you know, and it's not, and she was complaining about it because she was like, this is, you know, she's a career kindergarten teacher. So she's been in the field for 25 mm-hmm. years, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like, she's amazing. And she knows that this is not the way we want to go, Yeah, but the right. pressures are there to just like, you know, cram that stuff in and to make them all be able to take the standardized tests that they're going to have to take in two years. And also I am getting these, you know, emails from the school district and from, you know, from the state I'm in New Jersey. So the state of New Jersey, and they tell us like, okay, you know, if your kids are this age, they're going to have testing starting next week for the rest of the school year. If they're a little bit younger, they'll probably have a pre-post test, you know, that's not the whole month of testing, but there's going to be some kind of testing that, you know, that will follow up on the testing that they had at the beginning of the year. And so basically they're still being tested in these standardized ways, even when they're not young, when they're too young to take the month long standardized tests, you know? So it's just like, it's bonkers. It really is. I mean, just having a month long test. Why? Right, why are we right. having a month long test for any child? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that being able to kind of see that right as a systematic issue, a lot of the curriculum, a lot of these, they're, they're like lobbyists really that kind of shove their curriculum and the standardized testing. I mean, it's a multi-million dollar business, right? And that's why we're seeing the standardized testing. Like other countries don't do standardized testing. <laughs> like they just don't, right? And if they do, it's done in a really mindful way. And I just like, yeah, we're just like doing a disservice, but I, I love the idea of, of, each child having their own individualized plan, right? You know, let's take the time um, instead of just kind of grouping, oh, okay, these are the kids that are, you know, perform well on this. So like, let's group them and here, like, yeah, why are we not? And I'm sure teachers do that to a certain extent, but to have the resources to truly be able to do that each and every single year, you know, because, there's going to be different teachers that do things differently, right? And not having the resources and the time and the energy to give an individual plan because we get it, we're in it, right? It's the end of the mm-hmm. year. There's all these, you know, on top of transition IEPs, you're having your annual IEPs. Some kiddos have their triennial assessments that they're reviewing. And that takes time away from the classroom setting. And we understand that. And if you have, a class of 20 students and you're having IEPs, I mean, you probably have an IEP meeting every week during the school year, right? What is something that you see in terms of the neurodivergent child and how they are are treated? Are you seeing a mix of students that, you know, kind of chug along and don't have the support of an IEP? Are you seeing the opposite? A lot of them are on IEPs or 504 plans. What is something that you've seen with that? Well, I've seen a lot of kids who are, you know, in the elementary school level, like in that context, 
being supported, having the support that they need, having a para being mainstreamed and, you know, that going, you know, fine in like initially. So yeah, I've seen them that, you know, the students being, you know, kind of treated really well in the very beginning. And then things starting to fall apart the further they get along once they get into that realm of standardized testing and being kind of like shuffled around and then um, sometimes being removed from mainstreaming and going back and things like that. And I just feel like, and it's really interesting when you get into the higher education realm, because there's, you know, students who have been in, who have come from special needs classrooms or have, you know, gone through mainstreaming mostly and then Mm -hmm. had some, you know, gone to like a special um, school, an alternative school or something, and then gotten into community college, taken their two years and then gotten into, you know, the school where I teach at, which is a very big state school, Rutgers University. And then, you know, it's like there are accommodations, but it's like very little of it is individualized or is really like designed to like help a Mm -hmm. student make Mm -hmm. it through their classes. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's more like you're notified and then you kind of like decide how much you want to focus on giving accommodations and what the accommodations will be. Every professor has that, you know, that ability to decide. Right. And so, and that autonomy in a way, but it's very like, I just feel like like I see the trajectory, it just kind of gets worse as the standardization of the education takes over and it's less supportive the further along you go. And so I feel like if we could really like just in my ideal world, remove the standardization Mm -hmm. from our education, then Mm -hmm. we could just have individualized the whole way through. Now, I know that it sounds like it doesn't add up financially. And of course, that's why we have standardization because it's cheaper. Mm. But Mm. we also do have these examples of other countries where people don't use standardization as a crutch, right? And Mm -hmm. where they actually do have, you know, again, play-based social emotional learning Mm -hmm. for a very long Mm -hmm. time, you know, writing up IEPs for 20 students when you have to also teach to the test is impossible, Mm -hmm. but writing up 20 IEPs or like being in the flow of making those work, it is totally makes sense when you're doing social, emotional play-based learning. And I know this because I've got a preschooler and (laughs) in, you know, play-based preschool where there's no, any, no academics at all. And, you know, every child in that classroom is treated like, Mm -hmm a very, very important human being on a journey of learning. And that's how every child should be treated, not just like, oh, you're five years old. Well, sorry, sorry for you now. You know, here's the real world. Welcome to the real. No, it's like everybody can be treated that way. If teachers aren't feeling like they have to make kindergarten the new second grade, then they will be able to you know, be in the flow of an individualized learning, right? Yeah. I mean, preaching to the choir here, everything that you're saying sounds fabulous. <laughs> we would love nothing more. And and we, I feel like we've been saying this in each of our podcasts over the last couple of weeks, like our jobs shouldn't exist, right? We as attorneys in the area of special education, like the right 
and appropriate education should be provided to the child. And oftentimes for various reasons, that is not happening. And a lot of times it's it's top down. So while these pockets of um, unicorn teachers and administrators do exist, Amanda was a an, an aide back in the day for one such all-inclusive charter school, we need more of that. And what you do, we are so grateful because you've been able to take from so many different areas um, and you see the overlap and what you are saying and even the solutions you're providing, I think are feasible. It's just getting everybody to kind of have that paradigm shift, right? And it's it's hard for a lot of the people that are in control right now. <laughs> it just, yeah. it, it really is. I just was going to say that it's also part of it is that when in the United States, when somebody wants to have a better kind of education, a more individualized education for their child, they usually just take them out of public school. So we yeah. have mm-hmm. a problem because we have like the alternative is, is private school. And if you can afford it, it's like, why not? You know? Right. So it's yeah. like, but, yeah. but if you are committed to public school and public schooling and state schooling and, you know, like, you know, all of the things that I personally am committed to, I just feel like you have to start to work at these systems and change things because it's not right that there's, you know, even just within my family that I've got a four-year-old who's having this amazing educational experience and that my five-year-olds are having, uh, you know, the best they can have, but it's like, because the system is set up to force the reading, writing and arithmetic, you know, model, like, and to prepare them to eventually ace these tests. Yeah. And you bring up a good point of like, the people who can afford it, why not? And, you know, Vicki and I have had this conversation more times than once with the fact that like, we go head to head with the school districts, where we live, it's hard, you know, for us, like the concept of like, do we put our, our own kids, you know, they're getting to the age where they're going to be in school, Vicky's right now. And mm-hmm. we're, you know, we have those conversations mm-hmm. about, um, you know, well, whether or not we could afford to go to private school isn't really the question that we want to be talking about, because the more families that do that, it pulls more funding from our schools. And we talk all the time about how the fact that school districts already have enough money, but the more families, and we've seen this since COVID, that pull to go to private school, the less we are getting the support and the teachers and everything that is needed to make this change. And so like we've made choices and I I especially have had this conversation with my husband many times. It's like, if I'm fighting for change in the public school system and I'm truly like looking to get change, I can't see myself putting my child in private school Mm -hmm. because it kind of goes against what I'm fighting for. Right. And so it's a really hard concept because of course I want what's best for my son. Absolutely. But I also want to push for better for all kids. Right. So as we kind of wrap up, Dr. Bliss, is there anything in particular that you would like parents to know? And and also where, you know, if they have a question for you, can they contact you? And then just, again, the, where they can find your books. Definitely. So you can pick up my book at any bookstore or on Amazon, or, you know, um, it's published by Harper Wave, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. So you can go on to HarperCollins website. Um, I have a website where you can find me. I've got a newsletter and things like that. So a blog, et cetera. 
So that's drrenabliss.com. And also I'm on all the socials. So Dr. Rena Bliss everywhere. But yeah, I think that the main thing that I write about in this book in Rethinking Intelligence is just that we are all neuroplastic. And that just means Mm -hmm. that we are all changing and growing. And I think a lot of times people think like, oh, there are, you know, like babies are neuroplastic or children are neuroplastic or neurotypical people are neuroplastic. And, you know, actually, no, we are all. So it's like, whether you have a learning disability, you have intellectual disability, you have, it doesn't matter, like what have you, you know, you have any kind of behavioral, you know, any of the spectrum disorders, anything, right? You are always changing and growing. There's always opportunities to learn new things about your world, about your environment. And so, and we are just by definition as humans always doing that. And so instead of like seeing some people who appear to be like the successful smarties out there or overachievers or whatnot, you know, as the, the ones who happen to be intelligent and have brains that are, you know, churning away. I want all of us to see everybody as just by virtue of being a human being as neuroplastic, as growing, as developing, as becoming a a better, more knowledgeable, more aware and involved person. That's just our human patrimony. And I I hope that everyone understands that and can, you know, grasp that and, and can talk about it with their, their friends and families so that we all embrace that. I love that so much. (laughs) Like you, you are our people and we are so um, grateful to have had you on. Um, if anybody um, has any questions, please send them our way. We would love to have you back on again, Dr. Bliss. Thank I, you. I feel like we could talk. This is one of yeah. our lengthier ones, but it, it was the conversation um, was going so well. I, we, we didn't want it to end. <laughs> uh, so hopefully we can have you back and maybe have some some questions for from our listeners and um, you guys hang in there it's almost June and uh, we'll we'll talk to you next week bye bye